everyone. So welcome to the podcast. I'm going to do most of the talking here because my co-host Simon yeah, is a bit under the weather and he's lost his voice. Um, so I'm going to speak on his behalf today or our behalf. Um, what we're going to do, we're, we're actually going to take a couple of weeks break from the podcast and really that's just to catch up um takes quite a lot of work especially on Simon's end with the video editing and arranging guests and scheduling guests um takes a bit of time and we've both got a lot going on in our own lives and um what we thought we'd do we'd just step back and record some more interviews so we've then got some more to deliver. Um, it's been great so far. So what we're going to do, we're going to say that that is um, the end of season one. Um, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with some more episodes. In the meantime, um, for this episode, it's not going to just be me speaking, um, but we're going to have a video and an audio podcast where Simon's going to put together some of the clips from the interviews that we've done so far and have it as a kind of a, a collage of um, some of the, the quotes or answers and questions in the podcast that we've had so far. So if you haven't listened to all of them, it may inspire you to go back and listen. What we're going to do as well, um, moving forward, is try to um, open up engagement with the audience. So we see lots of comments, um, whether it's on Instagram or on YouTube, um, about how people are enjoying the podcast and also some questions as well. So we'd like to encourage you to um, leave those questions and comments as well. Um, the artists often see the comments um, because we do collaborative posts on Instagram, but sometimes they don't see them on YouTube, but we will definitely feed them back. But if there are any questions for me or for Simon or for any of the artists, do feel free to ask and either we'll answer them or again feed them back to the artists. Um, there was one question on a recent episode uh, with Mark Stockforth and it, what was that question Simon can you speak? It was uh, about how to get your art represented by a gallery I believe. Yeah okay. So I can answer this um, a little bit. So I'm represented by galleries, but I've just opened a gallery as well. And um, representation is, one is to um, wait for galleries to approach you. So that usually comes from having a, a strong social media um, following, presence, strong website, um, or exhibiting your work in places where those galleries and curators may go, like um, group shows, things along those lines. 
um, especially some of the um, the exhibitions at the Mall Galleries in London, Royal Institute of Oil Painters, New English Art Club, etc., because they have that prestige. The other way is to contact galleries by sending them an email and um, giving them a brief description about what you do, um, your work, and of course with links to your work as well. Don't bombard them with information. A good thing to do if you are approaching galleries in that way is to tell them why you think your work would fit in that gallery, what you like about the gallery, especially if you have some knowledge about that and the artists that they represent. The galleries will probably get quite a lot of these emails. You've got to make your stand out, but be considerate about that. They want to know in a way that you are considering their gallery as someone you would like uh, to represent you and not just copying and pasting stuff and send, sending it around. A lot of times you're not going to get a response, um, but it's, it's worth doing. Personally, my way of doing it is I, I think I've contacted one or two galleries in my life. And that was much earlier on when I wasn't um, established enough in that sense. But the galleries I've worked with since have contacted me and that was having that, that strong social media presence. Um, one thing to avoid, and um, in which episode was this? I'm trying to think back. Someone, someone mentioned it. I was at Finney Park Gallery. Don't turn up to a gallery with your portfolio and a car full of paintings or paintings on your phone mixed up with food pictures and dog pictures and stuff like that. Um, galleries and curators don't appreciate that at all. Um, in relation to the gallery I just opened, what I'm looking for, and I just started representing Mark Stockforth, or will be very soon. There are some factors involved in it. So one factor is the location for me. I want to represent artists from this area and this region or who have a connection to it. And Mark Stockforth doesn't live here anymore, but he is from there. Um, the second aspect of that is that his work is very, very strong. And I like it. it. It resonates with me. Um, another aspect is he's got a very strong social media presence. So that means the more eyes on his work, the more eyes then and potential buyers in the gallery. Um, another aspect is that he is able to write about describe his work in a way that gives it a strong identity. He has a style that has been developed over time. And 
there's a consistency in his professionalism. So he's not sort of taking a few months off and coming back and doing something different. Um, I think galleries want to work with artists who they there is minimal risk in doing something. So if I work with an artist and I say, you've got a solo show next year, for example, and um, they, I put a lot of time, work, money into promotion and stuff like that, and then they go, hey, well, it's, it's not good. So I think that's what galleries look for and what I'm looking for now. Um, just started working with a, another artist as well, Gabriella Buckingham, who makes really beautiful, colourful, um, considered but joyful painterly um, still lives and landscapes. And the same principle applied to her in what I was looking for, um, local or connected to this region, highly professional, individual style, can articulate her work has a strong social media presence and is consistent. Um, and I love her work. So look for galleries where your work would fit. And you think, uh, you know, this person likes this sort of aesthetic or this feeling, maybe they'll like my work. But do your research and approach professionally not turn up with a band full of paintings. Yeah. So that sort of answers the question. But it, and again, it's a different approach for different people. Um, I'd like to expand on that a little bit and sort of warn artists about um, so-called vanity galleries. Now, maybe I mentioned this in... Um, the interview with Mark Stockforth, yeah. that there are certain galleries out there who are um, who don't have the artist's best interest at heart. Um, they there's one in London, and I'll be careful here. There's one in London, um, in the East End of London, who approach artists, usually emerging artists, up and coming artists, and offer them spots and places in exhibitions. I've had these emails a lot, and I actually got one today of the same people despite asking them not to contact me. Um, and they offer you a place in this exhibition that they love your work, it's spectacular, it's fabulous and that kind of stuff. But you will be paying a lot of money to be part of this exhibition. 600 pounds, 900 pounds, 1000 pounds. This is not a good way to go. And it may actually do your career in relation to working with other galleries in the future, much more damage than goods. Having that on your CV or your bio will be um, a detriment. So it's being mindful of and um, careful 
when dealing with galleries who do approach you, a good way of doing it is put in this gallery reviews into Google and you'll see if they are a vanity gallery or someone who is a little bit more serious about it. Um, it there are quite a lot of sort of curators who, who do the same thing and offer you a you know part of an exhibition in at the Venice Biennale or something like that. But you will be paying for it, and it is not worth it. And you work with galleries that take commission. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, that was my my little um, thing. And again, I've only just opened a gallery, and I'm talking like I'm a professional here, but but I'm not. But I have worked with galleries, and I I know it enough to to. Um, to have a little bit of information on it. Um, so anyway, back to the, the podcast and everything. We are going to be launching Patreon soon. We'd really appreciate your support. Um, as I was mentioning earlier, Simon puts a lot of time and effort into editing the videos. And we want to bring you really really interesting guests as as we have already and as we are going to moving forward we've got some interesting people lined up so we're going to launch the patreon very soon in this little break that we're taking and we would appreciate your help so we can continue to grow and bring in other elements uh, to the podcast and also as well if anybody would like to hear from a particular artist please do feel free to either comment on the youtube video or comment under one of our instagram posts or dm us um, we check those we check the dms quite a lot so if you've got an artist you would like to hear from hear from um do let us know and we will see if they fit what we're looking to do here. Um, and if they do, we'll contact them and, and see if they'd be willing to be interviewed. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's about it for now. Um, and we'll leave you with this compilation of um, interviews and clips on interviews and we hope you enjoy it. And we'll be back very soon with some in new guests. Two weeks. Yeah. In about two weeks, yeah. Um, but do feel free to ask those questions and feel free to suggest people, some amazing artists out there. And Simon and I, just from our time on social media and, and knowing and looking, but we're just scratching the surface in many ways. There's, there's millions and millions of um, or maybe not millions and millions, but a lot of good artists out there. And um, you know, we, we want to be able to create content that you enjoy as well. So thank you very much. We'll see you soon. And normally I paint landscape or seascape. So it's this vast kind of space. Whereas yeah. life is this much more intimate encounter in a sense. 
and it takes a while sometimes to adjust to those different ways of working. Do you find that? Yeah, absolutely. I tend to be either all in the studio and then I remember that I actually love painting outside. (laughs) So Mm. I go and do some and I think, why am I not doing this all the time? So, and obviously it depends on the weather and... And it depends on my um, current exhibition as well. What you know, what it is I'm I'm working towards. So, other things kind of factor into to what pushes me to do more of. Just, I'd, I'd like to know: has your kit that you take out to do these paintings has that become more refined and kind of more honed? Have you kind of crafted something where you know this is an efficient kind of set of tools? Yeah. So initially, what used to happen? I used to work very small meaning like 10 by 12 inches or 10 by 8. And, you know, the, the spontaneity that I would get doing that was amazing. I loved it, you know, the splashes of colours and getting the just enough information on it. And then I, you know, it so happened, then, you know, I started selling it, which means, you know, I'm exhibiting with the galleries and, you know, competitions and stuff like that. It's became more and more serious. And that's when it's kind of, uh, the demand to get bigger and bigger was put on me. And there's only so much you can do or Al Prima, you know, on the site when you're painting planner because the weather conditions change and, you know, stuff like that. So it's only in past, I think, couple of months that I have, well, okay, um, about six months or so, I've started getting the paintings, 90% finished on site, now bringing in the studio and refining them because many a times you miss out on that one window, which <laughs> you probably weren't concentrating. And then you look like, oh my God, something's amiss. And then you want to put that thing. So a little bit corrections or, you know, um, just tidying up basically that can happen, which is probably just two or 5% of the of the work, I would say. Uh, but yes, 99% it's Al Prima and say 1% is, you know, finishing it up in the studio. Mm. So. Are you working on a, a Pashad box or and especially for, for, for your larger works uh, yeah. and how big are you talking? Um, I'm, I'm talking about 50 by 60 or I'm talking about a meter by you know uh, 80 oh. centimeters you know stuff yeah. like that now that's that's something that I have to work in the studio yes. uh, you know, carrying the trains and you know it's just not possible yeah, um, yeah. though uh, I do I paint at live events and that's when I do finish it on the side, but that's working at seven, eight hour that stretch, you know? Yes. Yeah. I think it's a, that directness as well of, you know, you've got the medium in your hand. You don't have this, this brush in the way or a palette knife or whatever. And um, yeah, I, I sometimes use oil pastel, you know, I like that because I can really blend I can use a palette knife if I want as well. Um, so with the underpainting aspect, how important is that to your work? Well, so I, a lot of artists work in a particular way and they have a method that works for them. And I don't really do that because I get bored too easily. So I, uh, I, it is important if I decide to do an underpainting, but I often don't do an underpainting. So I think that that's another one of the things that I love about pastel is that 
uh, for somebody who has, I don't know, I don't want to denigrate on myself, but somewhat of an addictive personality, <laughs> I can collect, I can collect papers. I mean, I guess you could do that with paint, you know, with wet paint. I do have a ton of acrylics as well and watercolors, but there's so many different types of papers, um, so many options. You know, back in the day, they didn't have that with for pastel artists. They just work on laid paper or, you know, even... I don't know what non-archival possibly, but a lot of just those laid papers back before all these archival papers became available and very limited, really just those earth tones um, that were available back in the day to the masters. But today we have so many options. So I am, I guess, kind of embarrassed to say I've got probably like a little store out there, <laughs> more <laughs> papers and pastels than I probably will ever use in my life. But I love having those options like Sennelier Lacarte is a beautiful French paper um, that doesn't accept an underpainting, but it's one of my favorite papers to use. And even though it's finicky, I would kind of call it like the Ferrari of papers for pastels, because even though it's finicky and it like breaks down all the time, like a Ferrari might, uh, if you do anything to it that you're not supposed to or treat it with the respect that it deserves, it also gives you such incredible performance um, when you do use it properly and don't let don't blow on it to, you know, because if you get a speck of 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 saliva on it, it's going to break down. Like literally, that's that vegetal grind that they spray on it is how they do it. And it just will completely disintegrate. Now, that said, I actually just finished a piece that's up on my mantle and um, I was experimenting because I love to experiment. And so I had recently purchased some casein, which is I was I'm kind of tired of using those really toxic fixatives. And I never use a fixative um, on a finished piece because I don't like it doles down the brilliance of the crystals, you know, of the multifaceted crystals of the pastel. But Oftentimes, um, depending on how I'm working, if I'm doing a lot of layers, then I'll often, if I've used up the tooth of the paper, then I will spray a fixative to continue to allow myself to work. And so I thought, well, I know that in the past I've been able to use a fixative on Sennelier Lacarte paper. And so I thought, well, I'm going to see if I can use casein on it. I knew that I could use these other ones like Latour. It's a Sennelier Latour, or there's some other kinds like Spectrafix, but they're super toxic. But I know they're like hairspray, but they're like archival hairspray, and it's really gross. But these casein-based uh, fixatives, which is basically like milk, yeah. and I thought, I don't know if this is going to work because it's not that sticky, gross stuff. So I sprayed it on, and sure enough, I, I put my finger on it while it was still damp, and some of the grind came off. I was like, oh, crap. So I let it dry and then I took a little bit of clear gesso and just touched those areas where I had touched. Once it dried, it was okay. I love experimenting like that and finding out, is it gonna work? And it did, but where I touched it when it was damp, I messed it up. So I just put some clear gesso on there and it dried and I was able to save the piece. So, you know, so anyway, I totally veered off course, but when I do, uh, sorry, but when I do work with a uh, piece of, you know, papers that I can do an underpainting on, I do think that those are some of my most successful pieces because 
even though Sennelier Lacarte is my favorite paper to work on, maybe just because I'm so direct and I can go slash and go crazy with it. If I take the time and effort to do an underpainting, it really does so much of the work for me, you know, and it's like, it saves the pastel because pastel is expensive. I mean, it's like six bucks for one stick of pastel. You know, if you get a, a decent archival and I use all archival stuff, um, it's really expensive. So if I use uh, underpainting with watercolor or ink, I can really manipulate that and work on it for as long as I want. I mean, you could basically make a finished piece, a finished painting, and then put pastel on top of it gently where you feel like it might enrich the piece that you've already created with wet medium. That's how uh, Richard McKinley, who is huge in the pastel world, um, I think that he's the president of IAPS, which is the International Association of Pastel Societies. That is one of the ways that he works. And he really kind of pioneered that, I think, um, I, he kind of pioneered that method of really creating this almost finished piece sometimes with an underpainting and then choosing selectively how much pastel you want to put on top of it. Often when things are good and you're busy with lots of other stuff, you don't sort of, you say, you know, I'm not going to do those for now. For all of the reasons you, you explained, um, we talked to Daniel Shadwell uh, in, the, in the last episode, and I was saying about this, about this balance between teaching and practice if you end up leaning too much into teaching you end up losing out on your own practice and many of my lecturers at university um, were full-time lecturers and the work they were showing was 10-15 years old so when times are good we're busy and optimistic you sort of say no to all of these opportunities and then six months down the line there's that dip and kind of wish you had so I think I think it shows that example of being a working artist that it is you've got to think about a lot of things all at the same time and some things can be um, you can make a decision on now yeah. some, some things you have to wait a little bit it's um it's quite confusing it is, and I think I think that you want to, you know, in in, in a sense, if you want to future proof yourself by mm -hmm. saying yes, I will do this in a year's time because that's going to give me much, you know, much needed, uh, well, possibly much needed income. Uh, but, but conversely, you're you're thinking, well, you know, I don't want to say yes because I I have this sort of imaginary situation where I don't need to, um, where you know, I'm going to have sold everything. And it's just going to be a different kettle of fish. Or the market is just going to be unbelievably buoyant. It's going to be you know yuppies with big mobiles again buying paintings. Um, and it's it's a balance, isn't it? Um, and it's very mood dependent as well. And it's all bound in with your own identity of what you're doing and and what you are and who you are. And yeah, it's it's a very complex beast. Um, and I think a lot of people are in in a similar you know, a similar situation. But yeah, I mean, I can give you an example. I, I, I used to be, there's an art school down in Chelsea, a private art school, actually one of the oldest art schools in the UK called Heatherley's. And it's an old, it's an atelier style um, <clears throat> place working predominantly from the model, but not exclusively. Um, and I was there, I was the head of portraiture there um, for 
think it was three years. And, you know, I, don't get me wrong, I'm, 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 a, I'm a big proponent of that place and, um, you know, good people and good skills. And, you know, I like it. But it came to a point where I was just working too much, going to meetings and meetings about meetings. And I was like, you know what? Come on. I've always said to myself, if if I spend more time doing that than painting, then that balance has gone, mm. gone skewed, become skewed, and I I, I had to um, to address that. So yeah, I, I was very aware that I could be in a situation before I knew it where I was um, not really painting, and bound in by the by the the, the monthly paycheck basically, um, yeah. and all the security. Mm which is not why I'm doing this ultimately. Yes, of course I want to be financially secure, but you know, I didn't sign up to be an artist for that. That's not mm -hmm. what I'm doing. And I think, it, I think it's, it's amazing in many ways that with Instagram and mm -hmm. now that we're in Great Britain, Simon's in Wales, I'm in England, and you're in Ukraine and we know you through, through your art because of Instagram and how did this sort of, how art can be such a, a universal and global thing um, from sales, whether people are, are buying work or even just appreciating that, that we know about your artwork and, and, and it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. Um, do you do you think that Instagram and the internet um, has helped you? Do you, do you find it, um, uh, it it's a good thing for for your art? Mm, it's very good, I think. For mm. artists, uh, you need to go to the I don't know Instagram or something. Uh, as for me, Instagram very cool. Uh, because I find uh, very good friends, really. We never see each other from eye to eye, but uh, we talk in the make video chat, chat uh, almost every day. Uh, they buy my art. Also, I can paint, I, I make, I can painting for them. And also, we are very good friends. And uh, as for me, Instagram gave me um, like a second life. I have life here. I have uh, uh, born people who just uh, uh, have uh, chicken and uh, gardens. And uh, when see uh, uh, artist or uh, or or person who painting on the street, they just make a, a fun face and oh my god, what she do? Uh, but uh, Instagram opened me um, that uh, society who really appreciate art, who wants to talk about it, who wants some. Um, uh, to make it, uh, who wants to make it together, who will support you, not uh, to be uh, like, uh, I'm better artist, not, no, no I'm, but just want to support you, understand you, I want to, um, to share experience, and uh, as for me, it's real, uh, maybe much more real uh, world than mine here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you tend to 
sort of say work holistically in that sense so you can put a color there but it automatically adjusts something up here so everything is related and you're always looking at a painting as a whole yes definitely than... yes I, I think because i don't use a lot of colors i don't i don't use just two or three i use a reasonable but not many uh, yeah. so they tend to be and i don't always clean my breasts properly so the, yeah. there's a bit of every color in everything so it, it, it's naturally harmonious the way that i paint I put yellow ochre and uh, cadmium orange in my blue skies, for instance, a little yeah. bit. Because yeah. if you put blue down on its own, it's no good at all. No. It, needs, it needs to have atmosphere and, uh, and it has yeah. to make the other colors. So I think, yeah, the harmonious thing. It, yes, I do. I do like that. But um, the way you're painting on the, the smaller the smaller panels that you do, you you get that uh, you joined up harmonious uh, feel with that. Yes. Each rather much quicker on an eight by ten. It's almost yes. given to you, but when you you have to sort of uh, think a little bit more carefully about it when you're doing a, a sixteen by twelve or a twenty by sixteen or anything bigger, of course. Absolutely. Uh, but the more you do, the more you don't even think about it. You know, it just yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like it's like driving. You don't think I better put my foot on the clutch. I just make, uh, uh, I, I, I I tend to mute some of the colours because the colours that come out of the tube come out of the tube. Um, uh, I remember there was a paint, an English painter called John Bratby. He used to put, put paint on the tube. On the, he's an RA. He used to put paint out of the tube, which is great. But I think he was probably uh, thinking he was a foe. But uh, I never, obviously, you use paint for, straight from the tube. It's always muted or soft. Oh, light or dark. Yes. And I think the tone is, is very important, not just yes. the color, I think how light or dark it is. I suppose because I've heard you on the phone once, and it, 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 <laughs> just when I was, you know, walking through, and I just it caught my ear, and it was so interesting because I could hear you saying to the artist about, I think it was either the size or the number of pieces required for a show that was coming soon. Yes, that's something which I imagine is difficult for you as far as it's several artists, different spaces, different rooms will have so many considerations for they don't work at scale. Some artists work at a smaller scale and other artists will create fairly large pieces because I've seen in your yes. main lobby area you have very large framed pieces which are beautiful and then other rooms will sometimes be dotted about with lots of smaller pieces. Yeah, so every show varies and now every artist varies. Yeah. Now, um, what I don't want to do is to make the artists do anything they're not comfortable with. Mm. But if they've got a major show, the one thing I will make clear is that there needs to be a variety of shapes and sizes. Because mm. a lot of artists, they're very comfortable painting a specific size. Yeah. And they go, that's my size. That's the size I feel comfortable painting. And they're quite happily painting that size all day. Yeah. I'll come along and go, that's great. <laughs> but... If you're doing a major show and everything is looks the same shape, yeah. it's it's much harder. So I like a nice variety. And also some of my clients would love to own an original painting by whoever the artist is. Yeah. And maybe they don't have the budget. So a, a little a small piece mm. and they can get just as much pleasure from it. So I think it's really important to have a really nice variety. Yeah. Plus I have clients that want really big pieces and it's a mixture is best mm. um but if you're someone that uh, doesn't produce much like a body of work could be say 10 paintings then that's ideal as well because we have 
different rooms. Mm. We create different ambience in each space. So I will put a very quiet, small body of work in one space and then uh, do something else in a different space. So, so my visitors hopefully will be drawn to certain things. Yeah. And even if we've got a major show by one artist, we'll always have a mix show upstairs mm. um, to remind people of some of the other artists we have yeah. and to, to encourage them to, to buy something. Because <laughs> <Of course, laughs> yeah. they might not necessarily fall for that particular body of work. Mm. But uh, yeah, going back to your framing, it is really important. Yeah. But my biggest tip is to be as uniformed as possible. Mm. Find a frame you like and stick with it. And don't look at it as individual pieces going, well, I think this one looks better in a pink mount. Don't do that. Just stick with one frame. Yeah. It looks so much better when you're hanging a body of work. I mean, do people need to, I say people, do artists need to prepare, is it about 30 paintings for a show or is it far less or far more? It, is that... It, 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 it's such a weird question because it just depends if you're a miniaturist or someone that paints eight foot canvases, you know, yeah, yeah. um, obviously I get to know my artist quite well. Mm. So if you eavesdropped on a phone call to me chatting <laughs> to an artist and I said, I want to, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's yeah. because I know what their work's like. Yeah, yeah. Um, but on average, an average solo show here is a probably around about 40 pieces. Mm. But like my current show I've got on at the moment is uh, two painters and a ceramicist. So um, they've done roughly about 35 each. So that's, uh, I'm sure you'll be showing your viewers some of that. Uh, <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs> um, and, and, because I know my space so well, mm. I roughly know what I need. Yeah. So um, I can always... Um, but the uh, what I need to get clear, though, I'm not telling the artist, I need this many paintings and you've got to do it. No. It's because I know them and I know how they work mm. that I know what number to ask for. Yeah. Because I, I have one artist, I have to wait two years for 10 pieces and I get nothing in between because it'll take that long. Yeah, and that's great. Yeah. And others just are much freer and looser and yeah. quicker. And that's how they work. And that's equally as great. You know? Yeah, of course. So what, what paper are you working on then when you're, you're doing your... Mostly Fabriano. Uh, yeah. Smooth, smooth Fabriano. That's very, very good. Um, I'm quite happy to use the sketchbooks uh, on there. I mean, that one's um, a smooth, multi-technique one. So yes. that's, that's nothing, you know, nothing special about it, um, but it's very, very good. So, mm. but that's another thing. I mean, <clears throat> I've used cartridge paper as well in the past, recycled. And when you start on the paper, it reacts in a certain way. Mm. And you think, oh, well, we're going to do that now, are we? Okay. And so you, you that sounds yeah. weird, but you have a conversation with it the whole time. Yes, yeah. You know, your hand, the paper, the oil, it's all about this conversation and what's going on and how it changes and moves. And if it works, it works. You're in that flow, as we mentioned, or yeah, it ends up in the bin or whatever, you know? Yes, yeah. it starts It starts with the paper. Yeah. So so with it, because uh, I know, say, with the Fabriano and there's Arsh and there's, you know, all kinds of uh, Canton oil painting papers. Mm. 
with the cartridge paper, are you priming it first? No, 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 no I, I don't do it with the paper. Obviously, with the canvases, I dress so that because there's a, yeah. rough, smooth, there's a rough surface. Yeah. Um, so I have to get back to that smooth paper-like surface with the, with yes. the canvas. But no, I don't, I don't prime them or anything like that. <clears throat> I often get asked, well, are you worried about the paper um, disintegrating over time yes. or whatever? And I've not had any problems with it. And I've been no. doing it for the best part of 20 odd years now. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, if it starts to disintegrate when I'm gone, then I'm sorry, I'm So we talked earlier about you moving to Rhode Island from Utah. Did you paint in Utah as well? Was that where you started painting? Yeah, I started painting in Utah. Um, so we we were there. I want to say it was 2007 when I started painting, um, and like I had said before, I just kind of went out, bought all these cheap paints and things and came home to our little basement apartment that we were living in. And had we had a fold-out table. We didn't even have a dining table at the time. We were still fairly newlyweds. And I just started painting on this little fold-out table in our little living room. And um, yeah, we, and it was about, I would say, I want to say like maybe eight months later, we had our first little boy, uh, our, our first child. And um, we have adopted all three of our children. So he, we adopted our first, um, in 2008. And so, um, and it was only about six months after that, that we moved to Rhode Island. So it was a busy kind of time in our lives, um, with him being so little and a big cross country move. Um, and I actually made a decision right after he was born that I would put all this, all my painting stuff away. I mean, at this point I was, it was really a hobby, you know, it was really just something I was doing for fun. Um, I had a good friend that saw some of my, those kind of first initial paintings that I was doing. And she said, Oh, you should try to sell these. And looking back, if I, I mean, I never want to say I would do anything differently because I'm really grateful for the trajectory of how things have worked out for me and my, with my art career um, I never set out for it to be that, um, I guess in the beginning. Um, but she said, you should try to sell these. And she recommended Etsy to me, which was kind of a newer thing at the time. Now it's a very different platform than it used to be, but it used to be all it had to be handmade things, you know, so a lot of artists were on there selling their paintings and things like that. And, you know, like for good or bad, you could look at it different ways the platforms that are available to artists are so wonderful now that we have such broad access to a wide audience through the internet, you know, through social media with Instagram. But at the time, Etsy was a great platform for that. Um, but there is obviously no gatekeeping involved, you know, so there's no holds bar, you know, anyone can put whatever they want up there and whether it's good or bad. And sometimes I look back at those early pieces that people were buying from me. And I think, oh, those poor souls that own these paintings, you know, they're going to all end up in a thrift store one day. I'm sure somebody will buy them for a dollar and paint over them, or I don't know, they're in the trash. I'm sure a lot of them, but um, you know, I'm selling, I, I started putting things on there probably not until quite a bit later, but I had remembered her recommendations and I was like, oh, I'm going to see about that. You know, I had a another friend that had bought a painting and my parents bought a couple paintings. Actually, the first painting I sold on Etsy, I was so excited. I go to look and it's my mom. And I'm like, Jeez. <laughs> I'm like well, that's great. Um, but you know, it, I think for me, like if I, like, I, I don't want to say I would do it differently, like I said before, but looking back, I, I wonder if it would have been beneficial for me to 
kind of have a little more incubation time for myself with my art before really trying to put it out there. But I think for me also, it was a really big motivation to see that there was an interest in some of the things I was doing. And it gave me like a lot of incentive to continue to work, even though I was very driven in my painting and I loved doing it. I was painting a lot in those early days as well. I've, I've always been, I guess, a pretty prolific painter. I've always, I guess I would say I've been pretty obsessed with it from the beginning. And that really hasn't waned very much. That hasn't changed a lot for me. Um, there've been a lot of other hobbies I've had in my life that have not had the yeah. staying power, you know, that painting has had in my life. Not the painting is a hobby now, but you know what I mean? Like in the beginning, having it be just this hobby, I, I was surprised. But I think part of the reason why it had that staying power is because I felt like it had value to mm. others as well. It had value in the world. And um, there was an interest there for people to have these paintings in their homes and things. So, yeah, it really was motivational for me, I guess, in that way. Yeah, this may be slightly overly simplistic, but I'm really curious because I... I do still life drawing. I don't know if you can see in the background there. Oh, yeah, I do. I love doing portraiture. I love doing landscape. I love it all. I can't get enough of each one. How did you land on, on still life and, and why still life? Do you have any kind of background of where that came from and how you solidified your passion for that specific? I do. I think for me, I was actually doing portraiture for a while. I was pretty good at it. Um, not professionally. I mean, I was like at the, in the student stage mm. but I realized I didn't really want models in my in my uh, studio and I didn't really want to go work somewhere else so it was inconvenient and there's something about still life that just really suits me I'm a sort of quiet introverted person and to be able to set up something in my studio that I can study all by myself and control is very appealing to me I love to be able to be in there by myself and know that it's going to be there day from day. So it's like, I'm not painting grapes because the grapes aren't going to be there. And that I can really, it's just fascinating me to study all these very intricate, small details. And I think it will be hard to do that with either a landscape or with a portrait. There's just something personally comforting to me about this quiet little space that I've made to create these little bits of art. And, you know, they're very personal and they're very orderly and they can be whatever I want them to be. And that's very appealing to me. Hmm. I suppose if I could ask a quick follow-up, it would be, how do you preserve the arrangements? Because I've seen that you've got cats uh, on your Instagram profile. <laughs> I don't do. know if you still have them. And they do love batting at things, you know? They do. <laughs> no, uh, my, I have a separate studio. The um, architect who built my house, he built it in 1949. His wife was an artist. He was an architect. So he built her a studio. Mm. So I have the studio now. And it's about just a very short little walk from the front door. But it's its own building. So no cats. Uh, so goes in there, you know, and whenever I let anybody in there, it's like, you cannot walk here. Yeah, that's excellent. And I suppose you don't use natural light. It's all your own setup to control the lighting as well yeah well it's interesting i i do use um mostly spotlights but i typically like to have a little bit of daylight coming in as a, a contrast and mm. the painting i just showed you tell me if i'm going to go grab it again but i let in much more daylight than usual so one part of the painting's got cool daylight 
which casts warm shadows. And the other part has a warm spotlight, which casts cold blue shadows. So this one painting has both, which if you do it too much, it's kind of confusing, but I really liked it in this painting. So more and more daylight. Here in the Pacific Northwest, especially in the winter, it gets dark at about four o'clock, 4.30. So if I were to work exclusively from natural light, I would be very limited, except in the summer, of course, in the summer it's light. So I like, it's part of the control is having the, um, the spotlight on it. Plus there's a certain, there's a drama you get from a spotlight that you will never get from natural light. I mean, natural light's very beautiful, mm. but it's softer and it's cooler and it's not uh, punchy. And I do like those punchy shadows. Your acrylic, your use of acrylic is very similar to your use of oil and looking for your Instagram. Um, I often can't tell the difference between the two when you're using them. And that is a real skill um, to, to have because of the drying time, obviously, of the acrylic, especially working in an impasto way. Which medium do you prefer out of oil and acrylic? Um, I, I like oil, I feel like is, um, uh, I don't know, I, I always kind of fall back to oil or I always end up coming back to it. And I want to spend a lot of time in it because I just feel like um, you, you walk into a museum and that's what everything is. And um, there's like this big pressure to do a, an amazing masterpiece in oil. And I just, I just love um, the challenge of it. The, the possibilities are so, I know, I don't know. There's a lot of possibilities with gouache, watercolor, acrylic, but then with oil, because of the dry time, you um, have all those possibilities times 10, I feel like, um, and all the different mediums, the different surfaces. Um, I just feel like there's the biggest challenge with it. Um, and I think that's why I always kind of want to be experimenting with it. But then when I paint with it for so long, um, I don't know, it depends on the time in my life. But sometimes I'll, I'll paint in oil for um, a few weeks or maybe it's a few months or maybe it's a couple of years. And um, I eventually get into like these little ruts and I'm kind of feeling stuck and frustrated with it. I just feel like all my paintings are starting to look very similar. So I'll, I'll put oil away and I'll, and I'll go back to acrylic or something for a couple of weeks. And mm -hmm. usually those acrylic paintings are, um, to me, they're very, um, new and good. And I like them cause I'm, um, I'm out of my comfort zone all of a sudden. And I'm, I'm going back to basics. Like I'm just thinking, okay, value color edges, um, and then, then from there, I'll get sick of that and I'll go back to oil and then those yeah. paints oil end up being more pure. And, um, mm -hmm. I don't know, I, 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 um, I don't overthink things anymore. I'm just mm -hmm. thinking about, um, making a decent painting. Decent I think it's interesting as well that you're fusing that ancient or traditional way of working with the contemporary as well, because, you do see a lot of um, traditional art still being made, and I guess it, a lot in, in Italy is like that, where it's very much within that um, kind of field of traditional methods um, 
applications, techniques, but then in many ways it's imitating the old art. Whereas what you've done is you, you've been able to take different influences, contemporary influences, and, uh, and fuse the two. Um, so when did you start painting clouds? Well, that was that was also in 2020. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, first of all, I want to say that I I agree with like your observation about like this sort of fuse fusion of of like older and newer things. It's like so so important because I believe that fundamentally the the old masters of the Renaissance and before then had an amazing grasp on technique and materials, and it was just so so important and still is so important and of course uh, artistic expression has to evolve along with us as human beings but I, I believe that having a firm grasp on technique and materials is only like it, all it can do is elevate your work so absolutely all for taking from the past and bringing it into the contemporary world um but yeah as for clouds, uh, me painting clouds, I, I started in 2020. Um, so basically, I'd, I'd come out of art school, I'd finished my last year, and um, I did my final exam, like, uh, just a few months before the, the pandemic started. So I was basically like ready to go out there and, and show my work to the world. And I was doing, um, I ended up doing like geometric abstracts, like enormous paintings of geometric abstracts. And, uh, and then the pandemic hit and I was like, okay, I can't really get into like galleries and shows and stuff like that. Cause that's all closed down now. And, and so then I, I sort of started really sitting with my geometric abstracts and I was like, is this really what I'm about? Is this really what I'm trying to put out there into the world? And the answer was no. And so I'd spent, you know, years on that sort of uh, evolving that sort of expression. And I was like, you know what? No. <laughs> so I, I completely changed direction. And I've, I've always been like a very outdoorsy person. I like to walk, I like to hike and just be in nature. So when the pandemic started and the lockdown started uh, in Italy, it was, it was very, very strict lockdown right away. And um, it, it was pretty terrifying for me because I went from being outdoors every day to being stuck in my tiny little apartment. And it was just so such a shock for me. And I mean, I was basically climbing the walls because I, I wanted to be outside. And, and I would be constantly looking outside, uh, looking at the sky. And it was really the only part of nature that I could really connect with because uh, being in the city, I couldn't see many like trees or hills or nature. It was just buildings really and, and the sky. And so I would see these clouds go by and, and the, the sky being different at different times of the day and between one day and the next. And it was just this, this real like connection with nature and this longing. And it was always something that would sort of ground me. Uh, so whenever my, my mind would sort of get away with itself and, and get me into like an anxious state or a depressive state or whatever, I would uh, like, if I were, if I was able to like, look at something uh, of, of nature, you know, either the sky or, uh, some trees, some hills, something, it would sort of ground me and sort of bring me back to reality. And uh, of course, the lockdown was a source of a lot of anxiety and, and stuff like that. So looking at the sky was like, okay, 
I'm, I'm back to back to earth, you know, back to reality. And uh, so I, of course I naturally started painting these clouds. And at first it was kind of just like with watercolors and just kind of playing around with different mm, materials and techniques. And eventually I started to do, like I went back to oil paint, which I've always loved. And I started to like see what I could do with gold leaf as well. Cause I had some in my apartment and that's when it sort of started to come together. And I was like, you know what, this is, this is really wonderful for me. I, I love doing mm. this. And, and I felt like, yeah, this is, this is what I want to be expressing in the world. Because you could be chasing that light all, all day, yeah. all, all day. And there's, there's something about the, the freshness and immediacy of seeing the light that you like. Yes. And, and then as an artist, you have then that power, like you were saying, from your memory, from your technique, to be able to capture it like yes. that. Yes. And it's it's being able to be completely in the moment. And that is that interesting thing with plein air painting. But yes, it's observation. Absolutely, it's observation. But it's also artistic license as yes, well. Yes, oh, 100%. In fact, uh, one time when I first started doing planar painting, I was a literalist. In other words, I would see a tree and another tree and another tree. They were perfectly equidistant to each other. <laughs> Boring. Me, I just copy exactly that. Yes. And I, I felt this is not working. My friend, Sean, who is a dear friend, a, a purist when it comes to plein air painting, 100% pure, put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Gino, I give you permission to change things. <laughs> I said to him, can I get that in writing? Yeah. <laughs> That's really triggering my head. Now reading later John Carlson's book, he says in his book, nature, will rarely give you the perfect composition. Yeah. It is incumbent upon the artist to arrange, yeah. embellish, or eliminate elements of the landscape in order to suit your composition. Is there anything you can talk about with regards to how you have this very delicate application of uh, midtones just balancing beautifully yeah. among each other? And I really appreciate how well they sit together and is there anything that you either teach about that or you can talk about with regards to your process and, and understanding of how to achieve that? Really? Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you. It's, I guess, you're underplaying contrast. And um, I, I will acknowledge a shadow or that idea of the brightest bright and uh, darkest dark but I will, I won't want to overstate it because I always want the option to be able to push the the tone darker or lighter. Um, and I find it kind of, I guess I'm attracted to it in other paintings, this level, you know, this un unification of a surface. If, if it's not, contrast is one thing that you can... I, I've I've definitely underplayed in order to um I suppose it's an attempt at control in some way so that when you decide when you're ready to make a accent or um 
an emphasis and then then I would uh, I'd just be gradual about it and I, I do that does come across in the teaching definitely is you know, maybe it's become a habit um, maybe I I suppose it's here's something hair, highlights in hair that's something in teaching that comes out and I'm remembering um, saying this to people studying on the portrait diploma I think that it's when you notice something being becoming lighter the immediate sort of responses to go to the white but the I mean one piece of advice I had at college was to use Naples yellow rather than white and that is softer and less um, dramatic or uh, yeah the light within a dark area might not be might not even approach sort of midway on a tonal range um, I'd, yeah tone is definitely is something that the New English Art Club when, since I joined I've, I mean they have a a sort of it's not quite a manifesto but it's an idea about what the artists in it you know the values that they share perhaps and it's one of those is the importance of the tone and the um, working from from life to, to some extent yeah, yeah. Thing which i've been learning as i go along so i'm still educating myself in paint slowly and it's usually too my, my colors are too heavily saturated and it's always trying to find these shades of gray make every color complement each other as opposed to having something really bright that is too dominant over everything else yeah that's something which must be i don't know how quickly you you learned that or whether someone taught you that because i didn't get taught that that's something which i just discovered by comparing myself to artists like yourself and you know people who i admire and saying why can't I achieve something which has this atmosphere to it and everything just looks like I've not observed things keenly enough. And I think it's those tertiary colours and, and trying to understand the grayscale of everything yeah. in nature to an extent. Is there anything that you can share about, about learning that and about working that a lot? I think, what advice could I give? That um, when it comes to greys, you can really push them in, in exciting directions. And what I like to get overall in a painting is a balance. So there's a lot of earth colours and greys in there with smaller sort of like pops of tertiary colour, if at all. So I, I suppose my advice would be spend time really getting to know your palette and mixing your colours and working out, re-examining those greys because they often lean in a direction. Um, I mean, I often start, if I'm mixing a grey, taking a bit of burnt sienna, ultramarine blue and some white. And that's a pretty bog standard warm grey. But it might need to go a bit more purple. So then I'm adding in maybe a bit of alizarin crimson and a bit more blue. Um, so I think it's just really keen observation and looking all over it, stepping back, really assessing it and 
before you do anything bold with your tertiary colours, really assess whether it needs it or not. Because you can leave that out if you don't want to put it in or knock it back a bit so it's not quite so strong because you don't want something screaming to be looked at. And also, you only really want, I don't like the phrase focal point, but you want the eye to go to a certain point. And if you've got two spots that are screaming, the eye doesn't know where to go. So you've got to think about the viewer's journey as well. And you want them to go to, well, you direct them to where you want them to go. You mean the, the analogy is maybe the, the singer or the musician, you know, if they are, yeah. are sort of taken away from that form of self-expression. Because it is, yeah. a, it, I think it's also, in a way, a, a meditative state. Yes. You with yes. all of your other business stuff and me with all of my things that when I'm painting I'm I'm in a completely different headspace to what I am with those other things you know I'm, mm. of course I'm thinking about what I'm doing but I'm also I've also got this kind of stream of consciousness stuff going on mm. it, it's a particular flow state now that flow state doesn't yes. um, it doesn't happen all the time there's a great book by I think he's Czech psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi he's um, come up with this idea of flow and mm -hmm. he, he sort of studied all of his top athletes painters performers mm -hmm. scientists yeah. and tried to look at exactly what that thing was that when they were in that moment and I think in a way, painting and for painters, um, we maybe experienced that moment when we were young. And I'm not saying we got addicted to it, but we we saw this as this kind of ultimate um, way of being, you're creating. Mm. So I think that's why it is different to so many things. Again, I could never get excited about doing my counts like I do painting um so I think you know I think it resonates a lot just a quick question something you said in mm. there talked about creative block or painter's block mm. and their ways mm. around it could you share some yeah of course um I, I think well blocks come in, in multiple forms you know, it can be it can be some sort of emotional block. Um, it could be some sort of technical. Maybe there's something technical that's holding you back. It could be a lack of inspiration. There are many different kinds that that you could be facing. Um, so what I was referring to there was specifically lack of inspiration. I, I don't necessarily feel that. I have gone through blocks that were technical in nature. Um, but you know, also just kind of like your emotional state does sometimes determine you know, are you in the mood to do this in the first place? Generally, depending on what kind of mood I'm in, I'm never not in the mood to paint. And if I'm not in the mood to paint at all, I find after 20 minutes of painting, oh, I'm suddenly in the mood to paint. And here I've been painting last week. So forcing myself to do it, that flow state does kick in. And I, I'm familiar with, with flow. But let's just say, um, let's just say if somebody's listening to this and they're going through a particular creative block at the moment, uh, there, there are some strategies right now to, to get out of that. One of my favorite ways to get out of that is, and you could do this in a few different ways. You could, if you're in a major city, 
and you have an art gallery or a museum where you have access to old masters or some of your favorite paintings, go stop what you're doing now and just go and spend the day at the museum. One of my favorite museums that I've been to was the National Gallery of Victoria, their 19th century wing. Uh, this is in Melbourne. And they had um, the Victorian painters from the UK, and they had a few French salon painters there. And there was a collection of work that was called the Felton Bequest. And it was it was extraordinary just being in this room and seeing all of these amazing works that just jaw-dropping. And I could never walk out of that gallery not being in the mood to paint. After you're looking at an original Waterhouse or an original Jules Bastian LePage or an original even Arthur Streeton or McCubbin or, you know, what have you, a few of the Aussies in there as well. Um, I, I could never walk out of that gallery feeling like, I don't really feel like painting now. I'll let them do it. No, it's like, oh, I've got to, okay, I've got to make, you know, I got to make this this bigger and more dramatic and I got to paint the waves like this and the sky like this. I'd always come back with some sort of, so creative block gone. That's one of my favorite ways. Now I, I'm not blessed to live near a, a museum, but one thing I do have is I have nature. I have the outdoors. So sometimes just getting out of your head, getting out of your space, taking a walk and thinking and breathing, just give yourself a bit of breathing room. Those ideas might start to come back. You know, another way is flipping through some of your favorite art books, listening to a podcast, just something that's going to trigger the inspiration. Because I think by and large, what, what a creative block is, is it's a state that you're in and we need a rapid state change. And often that state change can come by doing something different. You've got to actually move. If you're in that state, don't stay there. Move, do something else. And so for me, there are triggers, there are cues. So one thing that has really helped me enormously is I, I have a particular space that doesn't allow for creative block. Now, if you could see the studio that I'm in, and I've got videos where you can see a bit more of my studio, mm -hmm. um, but I, I basically have things around me. So first and foremost, there's never going to be a technical issue in the way because the paint is organized, the tubes are clean, they're laid out in order, the palette's clean, ready to go, the brushes are clean and ready to go, and the project's sitting there for me to get there in the morning or whenever I can get back to painting, I'm good to go. I can be set up and painting with the cameras on in about 10 to 15 minutes. And that's setting up all my video cameras, right? Syncing them all up, slating all the shots, and then boom, ready to go. So not just having everything clean and organized, but also having the right visual triggers in the space, right? So I, I also have a playlist of talks and, and videos and podcasts that I can't wait to listen to. And I know that I get to listen to that audio when I'm creating. So I know I'm going to learn something cool. I'm going to be able to apply something else to my business. I'm going to learn a new business strategy or whatever but I've got that sitting there ready to go. I've got visual things throughout the studio that are cool, that just make me like, oh, that thing, that thing, that thing. Yes, it's stuff. Yes, it's material. I, I believe artists should be materialistic. We should be obsessed with material stuff. You know, I've got like this really cool plaster horse statue and a, and a, and a replica skull and some of my dad's uh, portraits. I've got photos of my beautiful family. They remind me of what I'm doing this for. You know, I got some vintage taxidermy and some of my old favorite paintings here and even a couple of paintings from some buddies of mine. And so I walk in and immediately this just draws the creativity out. I, I have not too many, not, I don't go crazy, but I have some of my favorite books around 
Edgar Payne, composition outdoor painting. Shout out to Samuel Earp who got this for me as a gift. Uh, and so everything's good to go. So when you walk into your space, how does that make you feel? Does it draw draw that out of you? Now, not everybody listening to this is going to be blessed with an awesome studio space. I get that. So for some people, it's a kitchen table and that's okay. That's okay. How could you make that kitchen table yours for that time that you have and to get out of that? So again, my recommendation is if you've got everything, maybe it's in a storage tote, it's ready to go. You just drag that sucker out, set your stuff up, have an art book there, have something there, chuck something on. You could be in your zone. And you know, I've said this to other people as well. Like I said this when I had my big grand studio in Lawrence, way down in the South Island, I had converted an old building into a studio gallery. And I was there for a couple of years and it was great. It was one of my favorite studios so, so far. It was a massive space. And people would be like, wow, this is amazing space. You're so blessed. This is incredible. I'd be like, yeah, it's an amazing space. But you know, the only space that really matters there's two spaces that really matter. The space up here, how you think, and the state that you're in, and that two feet between you and the easel, you and that canvas, right? That space. So it doesn't matter if I'm in a broom closet, I'm still going to have two feet away from that painting. Yeah, I might want to stand back now and again and look at what I'm doing, but that's the thing. That's the space that you're in. So sometimes walking into the space, that can draw it out of you. But if you have a little space, that's okay. There's some strategies there to get out of that creative block, get right back on task, start creating again. One other thing I want to add. Don't ever don't ever get down about creating a bad painting because sometimes creating bad work can put you in a state where you 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 start spiraling downwards and now you, that's that's relating to more creative blocks. Make sure you got a few projects on the go. And if you create a dud painting, you know, there's always a way to fix it. Put it to one side, get to work on something else. Don't lose momentum. You know, one thing that can help get out of that creative block, start on something small, knock it over, feel really good about it. Celebrate some of those things that really work. If something's not working, no problem. Fix it on the next one. That's the other thing that helps create a block is once you build momentum and you start just churning through, it's very hard to stop. It's hard to stop a locomotive that's in motion. It's very difficult to stop the moving train, but that's what we are. When we're creative and we're working, we get that momentum behind us and, and you keep going and you'll find a creative block will be there on the tracks, smack right through that sucker. So yeah, it doesn't need to take much to to, to build that, but hopefully that's some strategies that will help. Some that's people. great. I mean, that's yeah. such important insights. I think you shared that.